Hello and welcome to another edition of the Advent IM Risk and Business Podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Liam Peters and Elliot Davis from our good friends at Wynne Jones. Say hello, guys. Hi there. Hi, yeah. Thanks for having us on, Mike. Uh, Why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners and uh, explain a little bit about who you are and what you do at Wynne Jones. Well, thanks, Mike. My name is Elliot Davis. I'm a patent partner at Wynne Jones IP. And for my sins, what that means is I help inventors, um, private inventors, small companies, large companies protect their inventions by filing and prosecuting patent applications. Yep, and my name's Liam Peters. I'm a Chartered Trademark Attorney at Wynne Jones, and I specialise in the essentially the brand protection aspect of IP, so I help companies, large and small, register their trademarks and also enforce them to prevent things like copycats and counterfeit goods. So you're the people that... Um those people that are just about to appear on Dragon's Den should come and speak to first before they give away all of their uh, intellectual property rights, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We're the guys, we kind of go under the radar a little bit, we're behind the scenes, um, and we're definitely the people you need to speak to before you make any disclosure. So, in terms of, you know, we, we use the term intellectual property and IPR quite a lot, and it gets bandied around a lot, but just for our listeners... Um, uh, benefit. Would you like to just explain a little bit from your perspective what IPR actually means? Yes, that would be that would be useful. Intellectual property is essentially an umbrella term that encompasses a variety of different legal rights. Those rights include what we call registered rights and unregistered rights. So with the registered rights, you obtain them by filing an application for them. Um, in the UK, you do that at the Intellectual Property Office and there's similar offices in other countries. Then you have these unregistered rights. For those, you do not need to submit an application for them. You, uh, They tend to come into existence automatically when you create something. Now these rights, there's, there's various different rights, including trademarks, which is primarily about brand protection, obtaining trademarks for things like brand names and logos, but there's some other more unconventional forms of trademark as well. There's copyrights, which protects loads of different types of works, ranging from literary works such as books, um, music, artistic works, that sort of stuff. Then you have design rights, which protects the typically the appearance of a product. And then you have patents, which is Elliot's area of uh, expertise. So I will uh, pass you over to Elliot. Yeah, so patents are a different animal completely, really. Um, patents are the reserve for technical concepts and that could be anything from an apparatus a widget um, to a method of production a process um, anything which is technical um, can be protected with a patent application subject to of course the requirements that you have to meet at the at the patent office but yeah that's patents it's probably so, worth mentioning quickly as well the purpose of intellectual property you know, once you have these rights, but what can you do with them? One of the main benefits is that once you obtain these intellectual property rights, then you can prevent others from using them without your permission, and you can also exploit them as well. So you can exploit them for monetization purposes through licensing, for example. So we hear the term patent pending. What does that mean then? So the patent pending um, term is often used whilst a patent application or once an application has been filed and before it actually grants, that's the patent pending period. 
Um, and the reason they often state that is because patterns can be pending for quite some time. It's, it's the, the normal, if you like, time frame from filing a patent application to getting it granted is about four to five years. Um, but oh, wow. it can be longer. Certain patent offices around the world can take more than 10 years. So before it's actually granted, you'd often see the phrase patent pending. Although I have to say that's not the legal requirement. When, when Once a patent application is filed, the correct marking that you should apply is um, UK patent application number and then specify the actu actual number. So patent pending is often used as a deterrent. So the protection is still there even though it's pending. So is, is, there, is there not a risk that you put your patent in and whilst it's pending that somebody else might also be doing the same? Well, once you file your patent application, you are protected. You don't need to wait until oh, okay. the patent grants until um, you kind of receive that protection. So the only thing you can't do with an application is initiate legal proceedings to stop a third party. So if you're aware of a third party that's potentially infringing your rights, you have to make sure that that application goes through to grant before you can commence legal proceedings. And there's, there's some really uh, interesting historical examples of people not going through this process and as a result of that, um, missing out further down the line, aren't they? I mean, if I, if I remember rightly, there's a whole thing around who actually invented the light bulb and that's not the same as who actually patented the light bulb. <laughs> um, yeah, so inventorship and ownership of patent rights are completely different. And you're right, if um, you can scupper your chances of obtaining a granted patent if you make an early disclosure of that invention. So if you as the inventor disclose the, the, the concept, if you make a public disclosure, then that will effectively invalidate any subsequent patent application you make. Um, but going more towards your point about inventorship and ownership, um, employees, for example, um, employees will often make an invention as part of their employment, but by virtue of the Contract of Employment and the Patents Act, the rights to the actual patent will often pass to the employer. Um, and, and this transfer of rights is also replicated, you'll find in most universities, where academics and students make inventions, but the actual patent rights pass to the university itself. So it, it can get a little bit complicated and the situation in the US is um, a bit more stringent as well. That's really interesting because a lot of academics like to showcase the, 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 the stuff they're working on um, and you often see them writing papers and presenting at uh, academic uh, industry events. But presumably, if they're not careful, they could actually scupper the university's ability to then patent something that they've come up with if it's novel and um, deemed as an invention. Absolutely right. And this is a problem I face as an attorney day in, day out. Academics want to get their work published. The first publication is effectively, you know, um, it's a badge of honour, if you like, in the academic industry. But by making that prior disclosure, by making that disclosure in the article, you're effectively, again, putting the information of that concept in the public domain. So it's a, it's a case of trying to rein in a little bit on trying to get that article published whilst the patent application is filed. Once the patent application is filed, everything is okay. You, you can make any disclosure you want. What happens then if the information is inappropriately disclosed without the inventor's or the owner's permission? I'm thinking, you know, obviously 
we live in a world now where we're seeing data breaches on an almost daily basis. Um, hacking has become quite a norm. Uh, and not just, you know, those kids in the back bedroom, but there's hacking of an industrial scale these days. We've got, you know, um, business on business hacking. We've got state on state hacking. So if that um, knowledge was put into the public domain inappropriately as a result of a poor uh, information security, would that also completely undermine the patent process? From a patent point of view, um, <clears throat> I'd say if, the, if there was a breach because of some um, data theft, for example, then you are time limited to take steps to be able to subsequently file a patent application. Um, there is a time period after that breach has taken place where you can still validly file without that prior disclosure in validating the patent application. Um, for other rights, um, I'm thinking of maybe a, tra a trade secret, um, which is a different type of, of intellectual property right, and that is where you rely on that information being kept secret to give you a commercial advantage. Um, the obvious classic example that's often used is the Coca-Cola recipe. So provided that information is kept secret, then you are at an advantage and you can utilize that um, to your benefit. But if that information is disclosed by virtue of a breach, then there's no way to recover that. So in fact, I, the way I see it then, guys, is that information security and um, intellectual property rights are kind of almost two sides of the same coin here. We're, we've got to look after our information securely, as well as taking care of the legalities, because the poor security could undermine the legalities. And if we don't get the legalities right, um, then in, potentially we could end up with information being disclosed that prevents us from having the protection, the legal protections further down the line. I completely agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they are both sides of the same coin and they both need to be considered hand in hand. Um, you keep the information secret and then but what, you do, what do you do with that information if you want to formally protect it? That's right. And that obviously is going to have to include considering things like insider theft as well. Again, yeah, absolutely right. So um, particularly th things where inventions are made um, by employees of companies, for example, and if that employee subsequently leaves and starts working for a competitor, does that in, if that employee takes that information, then again, that could be deemed a data theft. That could also potentially jeopardize any patent rights. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, we've got the, the, as you say, there, the issue of employees leaving, but also potentially of being coerced or um, forced to disclose information inappropriately as well. Um, you know, particularly if there's a high level of value involved in some of these inventions absolutely which you know <clears throat> which more often than not there is quite a high value because there's a lot of investment that's taken place behind the scenes with the R&D I think it's quite an opportune time to say as well pat people file patent applications not just to be in a position to stop third parties there's also a good tax saving to be had as well by having a patent um, having a patent on any part of a product enables you to reduce your levels of corporation tax by 10% so as well as filing patents to protect inventions, patents also have the added benefit of enabling companies to reduce their tax liability. Oh, interesting. Okay. I didn't know that. So financial inducement uh, from the taxation side, but also the protection from the brand side. So it's a win-win if we get this right. But 
How does this work then with things like, um, I suppose what I'm, I'm, I'm wondering is what's, what's the connection with things like copyright? So we talked about patents and, and trademarks, but what, where does copyright come into this? Copyright's a difficult one because copyright is an unregistered right, so you don't really need to do anything before you get it. And um, copyright could be taken in the same vein as a trade secret. That's because what you've created may, be, may have commercial value and you may not want that to enter the public domain. Equally, other works which are protected by copyright automatically enter the public domain. Um, things like books, pictures, photographs, but other things may be like a computer program where you don't want that to enter the public domain and effectively what, what is being sold is a black box which has the computer code in it but you can't typically reverse engineer that box to deduce the code. So sometimes um, it can be a problem but with copyright I think it's possibly less of an issue. Um, there may be a little bit of an issue with trademarks I suppose with first to file um. that's right with with trademarks the idea of information security is less important than it is for patents because even once something has been disclosed publicly you can still obtain a trademark for it but there are there are still some risks for example if you plan on launching a new brand that gets into the public domain. There can be some opportunistic individuals and companies out there that will try and register the trademark before you do, which could actually impact your ability to use that brand in the future. And, and of course, you know, we're, counterfeiting is a big issue here as well. And we're seeing, um, you know, in, in the cyber world, uh, organisations, nefarious organisations, uh, that is, not legitimate ones, uh, registering very similar domain names to legitimate businesses and then using those as ways of scamming uh, customers, passing themselves off as being a company that they're not? Yes, that's right. We deal with these sorts of domain name disputes all the time. I have several on the go at the moment. Like you say, there's various, what we call them, um, domain name squatters. They have a tendency to register domain names that look like someone else's brand so that they can effectively take unfair advantage of, of their brand. Now, there are legal avenues that you can pursue when that happens. There's, and it depends on what sort of domain name it is, whether it's .co.uk.com, there's different legal avenues for those different types of domain names and therefore different requirements that need to be fulfilled. But the, the key thing to underline there is if you own strong intellectual property in your brand names, then it gives you the, op the opportunity to take action against these sorts of domain name squatters. And we've seen this through the last couple of years with COVID as well, haven't we? With um, you know phishing emails purporting to offer fake vaccines, uh, oh, purporting to offer vaccines, of course, but being fake. Um, and, of course, we've seen attacks on pharmaceutical companies which are undoubtedly designed to try to steal intellectual property rights um, so that they could get hold of the, uh, if you like, the recipe of the vaccine. That's right. So during the pandemic, there's, there's quite a bit of evidence that there were um, counterfeit vaccines, masks and COVID tests. So the, the illegitimate brand owners would be able to take action against those counterfeiters by suing them for trademark infringement to get those products taken off the market, essentially. So is it actually illegal to pass off a product by pretending to be a product that you're not? I mean, we see it in um, 
markets up and down the UK with fake Rolexes and certain brands of jeans and all sorts of things, don't we? Yes, it is unlawful. There's different options for you to pursue. There's the civil law and there's criminal law. So under civil law, for example, you uh, it tends to take place between private companies whereby one sues the other for trademark infringement in order to get products taken off of the market and to obtain some sort of financial compensation. But it is possible for counterfeiters to be pursued through the criminal law. So we tend to work uh, quite closely sometimes with trading standards and customs authorities, for example, to ensure that these sorts of products are detained. And that, that, that is a very good strategy to adopt. I wonder where this is going to take us uh, in the future as well with the increase in things like blockchain developments and non-fungible tokens. I mean, I was just reading an article the other week, but people are paying millions of pounds for basically what is considered to be digital art um, and you know how that's going to be protected going forward when it's not even a physical, tangible thing, something that you can actually put your hands on. So, you know, there's the future of technology, artificial intelligence, medical technology, autonomous vehicles, blockchain. It must be an, a really fascinating landscape for you guys going forward. Absolutely. I mean, some of the te technical areas you mentioned there, they are key sectors for us and we have specialists in those areas. Um, with the advent of autonomous vehicles and blockchain and you know, the advances in medical technology as well, um, it's inevitable that patent rights and trademark rights and, and copyrights and so on are going to play an invaluable role. And we can undertake IP audits for companies um, to help them identify their rights. Um, and not just so much identify their rights, but also look to assess whether they may be infringing other parties' rights. Um, very often we come across cases where we have clients who have come up with groundbreaking technologies only to find that by trying to commercialize their technology, they're infringing somebody else's patent. So that we can then take steps to what we call clear the dead wood, <laughs> clear the thicket, and we can take steps to invalidate those patents so that our clients are free to commercialize their technology. So we, we would talk about um, tools at an organization's disposal like information asset registers which is about identifying key um, critical important information assets that need to be used and exploited by the organization for organizational benefits and it would appear to me that you know that that would be a great tool to help in an IP audit but also I guess there would be a product from the IP audit which would enable us to further enhance the information asset register. Absolutely, and one of the one of the key things that we consider with an audit is how can we help how can we help advise our clients on the best strategies for protecting their information, their data, what what steps they need to take to secure their system. So So what sort of things would you suggest as best practice when it comes to protecting an organization's information and intellectual property? Well, from our point of view, the IP is is pretty much straightforward. We can advise on what steps to take with uh, intellectual property rights, which ones apply. It's a case of when it comes down to when we advise clients to try and mitigate any disclosure, they need to limit access to that information, maybe encrypt certain items of information, password protect, keep separate networks, 
net, um, keep um, file stores off the network. Um, but that tool that you just mentioned sounded like a, a useful thing that we could recommend going forward. All the all the really good sort of practice that we also recommend then. So, you know, network segregation, uh, good quality physical security, limiting access, um, tools to man- manage um, information egress from the organization. Um, yeah, so very, very similar to the sort of work that we would do, but coming at it from just a slightly different angle. I'm just thinking, going back to the insider threat, there must be must be a huge emphasis in organizations that are involved in um, you know, inventions, development of novel tech, uh, around background checks and legitimacy of employees. Because I should imagine if you could get a job inside a laboratory where there's a new invention being made um, and you're working for the competitor, that must be a great way to get access to that information and usurp the, um, the patent, you know, get it out and get it patented elsewhere before the originator can do it. I'd agree. So what, what steps would you recommend, Mike? We talk a lot about a combination of uh, vetting and pastoral care. So with vetting, you're relying on somebody knowing something about the individual that you're doing background checks on. So whether that's going through um, police checks, so the Disclosure Scotland type of things, um, checking up on known associates, they're following up. The big thing that often gets missed is following up on the claims on CVs about previous employment. And um, if you if you miss anything in that, I mean, the, one of the biggest uh, examples of this, I guess, um, from a slightly different angle is Snowden, of course, who you know was cleared to work at Top Secret, but actually had his own personal agenda, which resulted in him making a huge amount of inappropriate disclosures. So, you know, need to be really careful that your background checks are also aligned with pastoral care, which means having ongoing monitoring and checks of people, their behaviours, their timekeeping. You know, somebody suddenly starts coming in late at night when they don't normally work those sorts of hours. You need to have triggers in your door controls and your electronic controls, your network controls to give you those alerts. Otherwise, you're going to miss one of those early warnings and indicators. And before you know it, the breach has already happened. Um, And that's from an insider point of view. But where do you see the biggest threats coming from, from an external point of view? Are Are they domestic or are they international? Well, funnily enough, there's um, <laughs> just been a report published in the last week saying that uh, China has now topped the international list of um, hostile attacks, uh, both as nation-state attacks, but also um, they are their profile is a huge amount of attacks against um, IPR. They're attacking R and D. Uh, pharmaceuticals, novel tech, um, and undoubtedly that is because there is a financial gain to be had. You know, if you're, if you're China and you attack an American inventor and you get a fighter plane into the air before your um, international competitors do, then there's of course both a, um, a military advantage to that, but also there's a financial advantage to that because you've then got the ability to sell that aircraft before your competitors have. 
So undoubtedly, you know, international um, attack vectors are increasing. You, we see a lot in the news about meddling with, by Russia and their involvement in things like the um, sports drug um, anti-doping and how they have managed to usurp that. So I think it was the... Um, just have to add a couple of years on because, of course, we've had two years where we've sat at home doing nothing. About four years ago, I think, um, there was a report published that said that more than 30 nation states were now developing a hostile cyber war and cyber attack capability. And, that, of course, that includes us and our allies, you know, the US and the EU states. But it just goes to show that more and more and more of this capability is moving from mainstream physical attacks into the cyber world. And of course, if you can extract information from an organization from hundreds of miles away, there's an element of non-repudiation associated with that as well. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned um, that we've, you know, we've all been working at home for the better part of two years. Has that had an impact, do you think, from an information security perspective? Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of angles there that we're seeing. One is that a huge number of people who had never worked from home before suddenly went um, home with a computer. Nobody bothered to check whether they had appropriate working space, adequate home security, anywhere to store their laptop and their paperwork when they weren't um, using it. Nobody really, in some cases, Organizations just went out and bought a whole load of commercial laptops and didn't ha even have the time to do secure configuration of those devices. So there's a lot of catch-up having to be done now. But also, we've now had two years of people working from home who have got used to a certain way of working who are going to bring back into the office space. And there's the potential that they'll bring that more relaxed way of working back into the office. And as a result, could end up accidentally compromising corporate networks. So I think it's a really interesting cultural shift that we've had because there was some research done that said more than half of people who had never worked from home before now want to work from home at least part of the time. So this, this phrase is being bandied around now about hybrid working. Um, I think hybrid working is actually the new way of working. I think anybody who goes back to the office full time will probably be the anomaly rather than the norm. So what do companies need to do then to mitigate the risks associated with home working? Well, we need to appreciate that we've got individuals who are working from home um, who are effectively sat on an uncontrolled um, Wi-Fi network, potentially are using uh, their laptop in an uncontrolled space, we need to move away from this archaic thinking of how we secure our network because our network has become incredibly devolved. So really we need to be looking at agile working as being the normal and building that into our security model and making sure that we have a means of assessing that both the physical and the cyber capability of the home worker is at least as robust as it was when they were sat in our office on our corporate network. I mean, we see loads of stories over the years about home routers and home firewalls not being appropriately configured. Um, hardly anyone ever changes the default password on their home router, do they? Um, 
you know, Wi-Fi um, access points can be, if, imp if not properly configured, can be quite insecure and easily exploited, resulting in a man-in-the-middle attack. So we get somebody who thinks they're on a secure network link because they've connected to the VPN, but I was already inside that computer when the VPN connection was created, so I'm already inside that secure pipe. But I think we also, we need to invest in education. Um, you know, people make errors, and there's no getting away from that. But we need to stop sometimes and ask ourselves, was that error a result of can't behavior rather than won't behavior? Because it's not always malicious. In fact, most security breaches that we see result in non-malicious, uh, non-deliberate human error where they haven't been given the skills, the capability, the education, and in some cases, even the tools to be able to do the right thing. So we're setting people up to fail. And in some cases, uh, setting them up to fail is making things too secure. So people get around it. You know, we don't give people adequate access, remote access to our networks. So people start emailing stuff to their personal email account so they can gain access to it. Then all of a sudden, um, almost overnight, this remote access that nobody was allowed to have became the normal, but we haven't changed that individual's behaviours or our underlying cultures. So inve investing in people is, to me, it's, it's even more important than the investment in the technology. But most organisations' security budget has a tiny, tiny amount allocated to education and awareness. What are some of the common human errors that you see? I'm, I'm thinking of... Um people clicking on links in phishing emails, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, phishing continues to be the number one way of subverting a secure network. In fact, most malware is brought into an organization by our own people rather than being um, an attack. So we hear, we hear in the news, they'll say XYZ company had a ransomware attack. What they actually mean is one of their staff opened the door and let the attacker in. So again, it comes back to education and awareness. We have policies that are written in the language of no, don't do this, don't do that. Don't click on phishing emails. But if we don't help people to understand what good looks like, if we haven't shown them what a phishing email looks like, how can we expect them to recognize it? And I think it must be the same in your world. You know, you're having to educate clients about the value of their information and how to protect it appropriately. And that thing, there's a lot of crossover in the messaging we're having here is that we need to understand its value, then we need to do the right thing to protect it. And, you know, whether it's just protecting general corporate information or protecting um, a novel invention, the activities of our own people can run a railroad right the way through all of our protective measures if they're not educated properly. That's a really good point. And my experience is that education within IP is, is, is of paramount importance. Companies need to know what they are entitled to. They need to understand sort of what IP is before they actually know that they have it, if that makes sense. So with this, yeah. we touched earlier upon IP audits, for example, and one of the things that we do during that process is we educate our clients about what IP is, what IP they actually own, that they previously didn't know that they did actually have. So yeah, I completely agree, education is essential. 
And then in turn, I guess, the the organisation needs to educate their people about, you know, you need to look after this because it's really, really valuable. And if you don't look after it properly, we could end up, well, I guess in some cases, you could end up losing millions of pounds, couldn't you? Yes, that's right. So one of the things I do on a regular basis, I work with many of our clients to develop internal processes whereby they're educating their staff to understand what to look out for. So for if we take counterfeiting, for example, what can they do dur- during the normal course of their day-to-day employment um, that helps them to identify counterfeit products, for example? And presumably, it would be a similar thing with patents in terms of educating employees not to disclose inventions. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, apart from, as well as informing um, in- inventors about not disclosing, it's about how to identify as well. How do you identify when you have something that may be protectable with a patent? And the typical signpost is if you've had to overcome a problem and you've overcome that problem with with a particular solution, then that solution is usually indicative of something that may be protectable with a patent. But very often (coughs) inventors are, they they, they take a very dim view often of what what they've invented and they don't consider that their invention is particularly groundbreaking and worthy of a patent. Um, but actually, the threshold for patentability f- is relatively low. So there's two hurdles. One is novelty. Like I said earlier, we have to make sure that the invention is, hasn't been shown in the public before. Um, but the other hurdle is inventiveness. We have to show that it's not an obvious development over the state of the art. And that is where inventors can often take a biased view. They think that their development is obvious when actually it needs to be looked at in the eyes of the hypothetical what we call in, in, in the profession the skilled person. So That's really interesting because I've always thought of as inventors as being the exact opposite to that type of personality. No, they are, from my experience, at least they've often thought, well, if I just do this and make that, it'll work better. And, but that's an obvious development. Well, actually, I've said, no, that's, a, that's an improvement. That's a technical advance. Um, so that may be protectable in its own right. It's, it's, almost, it's almost like a form of imposter syndrome, isn't it? It is, absolutely, yeah. They, because they are immersed in their technology, from, from, they, they tend to gloss over some of the refinements they make. But then from me, as an outsider looking in, I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty good. Um, maybe you want to think about patenting that. And then that comes as a, a big surprise to them. Then they, they, take, they take a step back and think, okay, let's have a think about that then. <laughs> I suppose there's wow, um, education really to be done as well relating to the the benefits of something like patent protection. So a company might think, well, why do I need to get a patent? But when they realise that actually they could get access to the patent box scheme, the tax breaks that El was talking about earlier, and also potentially monetization opportunities such as licensing, it, a patent really, really starts to make sense. And it's the same thing with other IP rights as well. It's, it's very similar to what we talk about in terms of the wider sense of information management and information governance is understanding the value of the information you've got and then understanding how to maximise the exploitation of that information for the benefit of the organisation, whether it's you know more effective, more efficient processes, whether it's providing greater access at the point of need in order to make staff more capable or whether it is generally, you know, that you can monetize information and use it in a way that is financially of benefit to the organization. But I'm also thinking here that there must be a huge crossover between things like the data protection principles around 
um, appropriateness of information, protecting it properly, keeping it safe and secure, only sharing it where it's appropriate. Um, and, and what we're talking about here in terms of IPR protection as well. You know, in, in, in the data protection world, um, we, we very much talk about, you know, um, the, the data minimization principle. So only giving access to the right information for the right reasons, segregation of access appropriately, making sure that where you're doing information sharing, that you have got appropriate governance in place and proper um, data sharing agreements in place. Because I guess, you know, if you're an inventor and you're using a third party for anything involved in your invention process, then potentially that third party is a threat to your IPR as much as it is to any other form of information. Absolutely right. And this is, again, a feature that we see um, particularly with applicants and companies who want to outsource some work um, to a third party. And that could be anything from a, um, a product developer to a third party who may be redesigning their website. You have to consider who is going to own the rights to any developments that are made. So when you're looking to, to have a product developed by a third party, then you need to be sure that there's a service agreement in place which specifies that you own the legal rights to any intellectual property which mm -hmm. arises as part of that commission. But equally with web design, for example, the first owner of content in a web design is the web designer. The first owner is always the author, subject to any agreement to the contrary. So again, you need to be sure that you have specific agreements in place when you consult with third parties to make sure you retain ownership of these rights. Otherwise, your ability to progress and, and further develop the products can be stymied. That's really interesting because I'm just thinking now about you know some of the questions that I've been asked over the years. Um, and I suppose I've not really had a, a competent um, answer for. But things like training providers, they're being paid to create a training course to be delivered to a client. Um, who, where does the IPR rest with in, in those sort of situations? I'm going through the exact issue now of my <laughs> with the client. Um, it's very difficult and the bigger and the main difficulty lies with the fact that most training materials are not protectable with a registration, not with a registered right. So you have to rely upon the unregistered rights like copyright. And with copyright, it's always subjective as to who owns that right, who actually created that right. And if there are agreements in place which are ambiguous, that can further muddy the waters. So trying to carve out who owns what. And when we speak of copyright, copyright is a broad term that covers a basket of different rights. So within copyright, you may have particular rights to the, for, for example, if it's a, a music production, there could be rights to the lyrics, rights to the music, rights to the acts. Um, the, the performance. So you can have a lot of rights grouped up within copyright and trying to untangle those and identify who owns what can be very difficult. Yeah, I've, um, I remember going to a conference with um, LER comms manager actually and I was sitting there watching a presentation and suddenly seeing at least two or three slides that had been directly lifted from a presentation we had previously given and just looking at each other and going, 
how does that work? You know, <laughs> well, it sounds so, like it shouldn't have. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know whether to be um, proud that my work was being plagiarised or annoyed, actually. That's what they say, isn't it? The, the best, um, best honour is to be impersonated. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it's a, absolutely fascinating and such a, um, a minefield for organisations to work through. No wonder that an organisation like yourselves is so busy with you know, everything that's going on in the world at the moment. And it must be um, a good, it must be a good future. You know, as the saying used to be, the, the future must be very bright. The future's orange. <laughs> it, I'd agree with that completely. Um, and I'd say our profession as well has become more into the limelight of late, um, particularly when you see um, some of these high profile legal actions taking place between the likes of Apple, Samsung, Microsoft. Um, historically, if you go back 20 or 30 years, then our profession went completely under the radar and it's a very old profession. Um, and we've spent the last 10 years or so really pulling this profession into the modern era, um, trying to modern, modernize um, the approach to IP, um, raising an awareness of IP. And as Liam mentioned, just training people, educating people, just to you know, raise the profile. Um, because IP can be the most valuable asset of companies. It's a, very, very similar to my profession. You know, we've spent 20 years trying to go from what effectively were hobbyist practitioners, um, people who got into this job because it was something that they just liked, they were interested in. There was no formal training. You just became good at it by doing it to you know where we are today which is you know professionalization cpds um you know looking at a formal education route combined with capabilities and competencies so how would how would somebody get into your line of work traditionally do you do, do they come through a law degree route are they uh, are, they, are they people who have a background in invention and therefore understand the the type of thing that you do it depends on which route you're taking. So a trademark attorney tends to have a different background to a patent attorney. For me, for example, I did a law degree and then I went on and did some postgraduate courses to qualify as a trademark attorney. You don't have to have a law degree. You can have other degrees, but I think it is most common for trademark attorneys to have a law degree. Whereas with patent attorneys, Al, do you want to speak a little bit about the... Yeah, so with a, with a patent attorney, um, patent attorneys specialise in technical areas. So you'll have a patent attorney who specialises in chemical inventions or another attorney who specialises in electronic semiconductor type inventions. And so to, to be in a position to be eligible to sit the patent examinations, you have to have a scientific degree um, in a STEM subject. So for me, my background is physics and electronics. Um, I spent some time at university um, obtaining masters and PhDs and whatnot. But then I had to undergo a series of examinations, which took me another three or four years to get qualified as an attorney. Um, so the route is difficult. And if you ask anybody how they entered the profession, they'll probably give you a different answer. Yeah, very similar to security and actually very similar to um, some of our colleagues that we talk to a lot over in facilities management is people are entering these professions from all sorts of interesting and different backgrounds. And then there's a commonality once you get into wanting to do that job. But until that point, people are kind of like 
coming in from all sorts of different routes. Uh, I'm fascinated at the idea that uh, you've got a physicist who's now a patent attorney. <laughs> Surely there'd be more money to be uh, made staying in physics and coming up with a new invention and getting your colleagues to patent it for you. Well, I'm not, I'm not clever enough to be an inventor. <laughs> <laughs> there goes that imposter syndrome again. <laughs> So I, I was just going to say, yeah, I've I've had no regrets. I was lucky um, since joining the profession. I've I haven't looked back, and I've enjoyed it from day one. Every day is different. So you meet with you meet with wonderful people, colourful people, and you always get a different concept to consider, a different invention, from the weird and the wacky right through to the you know groundbreaking technologies. I think that's one of the really interesting things about it. You really do get to meet people at loads of different businesses in in various different industries i i deal with clients in multiple industries whether we're talking about sports fashion cosmetics various different industrial um you know like software and chemicals and, and that sort of stuff so it's really really yeah, um, I was just about to varied. say it's just really got me thinking about just in in life generally where you know from from a new fragrance to I guess you know a, a new a new um, crisp flavor to oh, what was it um, the the pyramid tea bag there must must be all sorts of things that we take for granted in our daily lives that are fascinating and novel in your world. Yeah, I mean, well, when I give talks on IP, I always give the example of the coffee jar. So, for example, if you were in the position in the business of making and selling coffee, and you had a new new brand, new jar, new coffee product, then the types of things to consider with IP. So you consider the, the patent protection for maybe the way the coffee is ground and packaged. Then you have the labels, you have the copyright in the labels and the, and the packaging. You have trademark rights in the brands and also design rights in the jar itself, for example, how it looks. So that's just a simple coffee jar. So you could have a, you know 10 or 20 or so different IP rights with the coffee jar. And when you then think of things like the iPhone, um, how many patents and trademarks and brands and copyrights and so on, you know, with that type of product, it's it's immense. So, so some of those technology disputes are, are as simple as um, your button is the same shape as our button, aren't they? I mean, it's, it really does get quite uh, down. Actually, the one that's just uh, sprung to mind, of course, was Colin the Caterpillar. Oh, yeah. I was just going to mention that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a really interesting case, and um, yeah, that one's definitely caught the headlines. It's quite an enjoyable, quite an enjoyable case to read, to be honest. I, I really liked the, um, the 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 sort of the way the PR um, how how they sprang it because they basically said, well, if you any, honestly expect our caterpillar to be anything like your caterpillar, then you know you obviously haven't shopped in our stores. Well, it was it was free advertising, really, for Aldi, in, in a way. Yes, they would have spent quite a lot in terms of legal fees, you know, defending this this complaint, but they've received so much publicity that it's probably worth it, to be honest. And then, of course, they had the great idea of donating proceeds to charity as well, which just made them come out of it, the whole thing, like the good guys. Yeah, they, they play it really well, and you always expect this type of thing to happen at Christmas as well, when you have the Christmas adverts. So they're always waiting to see what one big company does before they decide to do something. Yeah. I'm not going to say too similar, but they take the, the theme of it. I mean, they, they've, um, they've walked the tightrope quite a few times, haven't they? Because they've been in trouble with Slimming World and 
all sorts of other um, big brands because they're, they're actually incredibly good at coming up with something that looks very similar with a slightly similar name without actually saying that this is actually the same product. So that, that must be that must be walking a ve on very thin ice at times when you do stuff like that because you're you're imitating without actually claiming to be the same thing. So it's not, I guess it's not the same as counterfeiting because in that case you are claiming to be that product, but it must be very close to counterfeiting at times. Yeah, it is a different thing. It can still amount to something like trademark infringement or design infringement. But many of these companies, they can be quite clever in terms of designing something that somewhat resembles this competing product, but doesn't actually infringe on any of the IP rights. So part of the work that we do actually is developing strategies, IP strategies for our clients that will adequately protect them against these sorts of copycat products and lookalike products. Um, you know, you tend to find that if you have really weak protection that's been constructed in quite a poor way, then it may not actually be possible to take action against some of these lookalike products. But if your protection has been designed in a really robust way, then it increases your ability to actually stop these sorts of lookalikes. I'm prepared to bet that very few of the people listening to this uh, podcast at the start of this podcast would have realised just how much the whole area of intellectual property um, actually has a connection with them in their daily lives as well. Absolutely. I mean, you even got to look at the iPhone, like I said, and the slide to unlock function. Um, Apple filed a patent on that concept alone. Um, so, yeah, it's surprising how much we interact with IP rights day in, day out. So you actually can have a patent just on something like a slide to unlock function. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're, when you have to trace a particular track or a route on your iPhone, um, you usually have to connect some dots or in the case of Apple, it was slide that button across. That was actually granted as a patent in a number of territories. It was subsequently revoked in most territories. And I think from last, um, I, I think it's now only valid in Germany, but I, I'm not too sure about that. But yeah, absolutely. You can get patents on, it was, a, it was basically, a me, the, the patent was directed to a method of unlocking a handheld device. So how, how does a patent get revoked then? Under what circumstances would you lose a patent? There's various grounds for attacking a patent once it's granted. Um, one of the reasons is uh, that patent, a third party may look for sources of information to prove that that concept was publicly available before the patent was filed. Right. Um, alternatively, there may have been some issue during the prosecution, during the examination of that application. Maybe the applicant made an amendment or did something that they shouldn't have. That can give rise to an invalid patent. Okay, so you could almost argue further down the line that the, the slide to unlock function wasn't novel after all and therefore it wasn't patentable. That's right, exactly, yeah, and that's the usual defence. So when, when a third party receives a so-called cease and desist letter claiming that they're infringing somebody else's patent, then the normal reaction is to claim that that patent is, is invalid. And, and that defendant would typically then go out and perform a search to see if similar concepts were available before that patent was filed. It's really interesting in the world of um, you know, um, computer coding then because there's a huge amount of computer coding is actually lifted and shunted. So you must be in danger at any moment that you've taken somebody else's um, code 
and used it inappropriately. Uh, in fact, I think one of the big one of the big IT companies didn't they end up in court for exactly that? There was a dispute that said that actually the code you use at the heart of that program uh, is actually our code and you're not entitled to use it. So the, and, and you know there's a huge move towards this whole idea of open source coding and people putting their code in the open that actually, in some cases, you could be doing yourself a disservice through open source coding further down the line because it doesn't stop somebody from copying your, uh, your code and you wouldn't end up being able to get a patent or protection for that code. Yeah, copyright is a difficult one. So to, to substantiate the ground for copyright infringement, you have to prove that a substantial part of the work has been copied. Now, a substantial part doesn't necessarily mean the majority of the work. It can just relate to the important part of the work. So with computer code, for example, generally a computer code may be thousands of lines long and okay. that code will pull in standard library routines, functions, but there may only be 50 or 100 lines of actual code which does the bit that you want it to do. And that is the substantial part so if that bit has been copied, then yes, there is an argument that there's been a copyright infringement. Really interesting, guys. I have to say that this is probably, for me, been one of my favourite podcasts of all the ones we've done. Um, it, it's just because it, I've, it's, made, it's really resonated with me uh, in you know, my daily life and made me think about all sorts of things, you know, from, as we've talked about, the iPhone to a fragrance to, you know, all sorts of stuff. Absolutely fascinating. No wonder you guys are always have a big smile on your faces. <laughs> no, yeah, like I said, it's always enjoyable. You never know what's going to come across your desk. Brilliant. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time to participate in this podcast. I've really enjoyed it. It's always a pleasure to exchange ideas and views with you, although I will be more careful about my IPR before talking to you next time. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for inviting us on, Mike. It was good to, good to talk to you. It's been an absolute joy. This has been the Advent IM Risk and Security Podcast. Everybody, have a great time. Look after yourself and keep staying safe. Thank you. Thank you.